it, it'll be an open, open question and answer, but raise your hand and I will bring a microphone to you. Uh, and then you can, you can ans- ask your question through the microphone. Why don't you, why don't you say your name as well? That'd be good. Uh, when you do that. So I that, like that. Yeah. And uh, we can go, for, uh, go from there. Uh, so, and, and could we try to have ground rule of uh, make the question a question uh, to, uh, to keep it uh, 20 seconds or so, and I'll try to keep the answers to you know, as brief as possible because uh, you can do a dissertation on some of these. But now we right. can get through more of them. Uh, but that'd be good. Great. So, your name and the, the, the brief question. Sound all right? All right. The, usually the first one is the hardest one to get to, so who wants to start? Here we go. Boji. Boji. Hello, hello. Hi, my name is Boji. Hi, Boji. Uh, met you earlier, so you could practice my name. Um, my question is, I'm taking a class at the UW where we're looking at uh, life as a phenomena, basically treating life in this imminence and all that philosophical stuff, Deloitte, if you know philosophy. And the question I want to bring up is, in your book, Letters from a Skeptic, you bring up the cause and effect relationship that the effect can never be greater than the cause or the creator, in the sense the human, in our case, would never be greater than God. Sure. So we see that, that linear perspective, you know, working. But a reading that I had from a guy named Holland looks at the creation of emergence, looking at how, for example, chess and how a person create rules for within every piece has their, their part that they can play rook with this part, etc. And how, as complex it eventually gets, just shows that, as a creator, I would have never seen that this chess game. Sure, yes, yes. So in the relationship of cause and effect, as something kind of, you know, in the hierarchy of God being greater than us, how does that work with uh, systems that we have from economy to nature? Very good. To people. Thank you. Uh, That's an excellent excellent question. Um, And actually, if I was writing... Uh, letters from a skeptic today, I would have, I think, either dropped that argument or would have uh, seriously qualified it for all the reasons you just gave. So what he's getting at is that there's a thing called emergent property uh, uh, theory where um, uh, it, it's sort of just a description of a certain phenomenon in nature where the, the whole can, be, uh, can outrun the parts. A, a good example would be an ant colony where if you have ants, you know, any given ant can only do six behaviors. But somehow the organization of the ants, the togetherness of the ants, is able to put together a very complex society. And, and um, uh, the, so the ant colony is way smarter than any individual ants. So it's an emergent property. And we find this all over the place in nature. In nature. Uh, there's something about uh, the way birds uh, fly, for example. It's like they have a corporate mind. Uh, a, a flock of birds flying is sort of like a single bird. And so there's this wholeness that is there. And so then the argument would be, um, can you account for human beings, the phenomena of human beings, even though we have qualities that no, um, uh, that, that matter in and of itself doesn't have. We have consciousness. You know, we have moral principles. Can it be the case that, that those are all, consciousness, morality, that those are all emergent properties uh, because of the, the complex way that the parts interact with one another? And it's a, it's a, it's a very, very good question. My response would be, a basic response would be, I think, this. That while you, two things, I think. In fact, I want to stand up because I think better when I'm walking sometimes. Um, One is that emergent property theory is simply a description of what we see. 
It's not a, a metaphysical explanation for how we got there. So, yeah, we can describe, and it's undeniable, that there are emergent properties all around anthills and birds and the human mind and human society, traffic flow. All of these things have emergent properties. But that doesn't answer the question of what sort of um, cause it needs to be postulated to explain that kind of a universe. Why would the world operate that way? Um, why? You know, so w- w- what is it about reality such that it can have an emergent property? Yes, it does have emergent properties, but doesn't that say something about the nature of reality, that it can produce these sorts of things? You see what I'm saying? So it's a descriptive thing. It's not an ontologically prescriptive thing. The second thing I would say is this, that I don't think all emergent properties are alike. What can happen, like, I can see how, at least descriptively, how you can get a very complex anthill that outruns the behavior of the individual ants. And you can give, you know, kind of a causative explanation around that. But I don't know how you could get from, how you could emerge your way into, let's say, reason. That seems to me to be something very Something very different. If you have all of, suppose you accept that all of the parts of the brain are uh, 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 physically determined. Okay, so there's, there's absolute determinism on a part of it. That means that the emergent property, while you can get an emergent property there, it's going to be determined. You can't go to an undetermined or a free state from a determined state, at least so far as I can see. And so if everything in the brain is determined, then... Everything I'm saying right now is determined. Uh, granted, it's, it, the, the operations, uh, the mechanism that is expressing itself right now in the form of my brain far outruns uh, what any particular uh, quantum particle or neuron or whatever in my brain would be capable of, but it still would be determined. I don't know how you could ever, how, how you could get a, 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 an emergent property that's fundamentally different than or in contradiction to the parts that went into making it up. But if what I'm saying now is determined, how can it be rational? If, if, if what I'm saying right now is determined, it seems to me that it has the same truth value as a burp or any other kind of gastrointestinal explosion you can imagine. Uh, you wouldn't say if some more to flatulate, oh, that was true. <laughs> I think. Uh, and the fact that it's far more, <laughs> the fact that it's far more complex than a burp or a fart doesn't make it any more true or false. You see what I'm saying? I would say the same thing about, um, about, uh, morality. I, you know, they, there's been a lot of sociological, anthropological analysis trying to show how it is that we have have sort of evolved the morality that we got. Um, and I, I understand that, and some of it, you know, goes a long way. You can show that there's something like sort of pre-altruistic behavior in chimpanzees and, and things like that. But what I, I, I have never been able to see, and I've read a number of these folks, I don't know how you could get to a genuine ought from an is, this is the case. Okay, so we, uh, you can say why uh, out of evolution and the fight to survive and to reproduce, how it is that you produce cooperative behavior. Got that. That, that you can do. But that's different than saying we ought to live this way. Okay, so I, you, you can say uh, it is our, it, it, for survival purposes, we generally agree that uh, uh, mutilating babies for entertainment is not good. That's bad. 
And so what we mean by bad is it's, it, it's not advantageous. Uh, we don't prefer it. We've evolved to be the kind of beings who don't generally like to mutilate babies uh, for entertainment. But you can't say that that really is wrong. And I, I think when I say mutilating babies for entertainment is wrong, what I mean is something you can't get to through an emergent property theory. I think what most people mean by it is what you can't get. We're, I, I, we're kidding ourselves. We think we can just reduce that down to a cultural thing. Like some people like vanilla ice cream. Other people like, like uh, chocolate. Some people like mutilating babies. But most of us don't, so that's why we agree that it's bad. I, I, it, it seems like something is lost in the translation there. Maybe something's lost in my explanation right now, so I better move on. But it's an excellent, excellent question. Oh, coffee. <laughs> coffee. Hey, my name's Nate. Dean? Nate. Nate. Close. Oh, yeah. That's close. Joe? Charlie? <laughs> uh, I struggle with this personally. Is, uh, so I have two really close friends I've had a relationship with for a long time, talking about a lot of questions, all, all, all over apologetics. And... A lot of it came down to this, as they say, I, um, I have thought through all these questions, I have all these beliefs, and I have decided to try to seek God. So they, they say, you know what, I've tried praying, I've read the Bible, I've tried to seek after God. You tell me that this God is always seeking after me, he loves me, he wants to have a relationship with me. And so I have two really good friends who sought, as far as I could tell, with all of their hearts to find God. And in my belief system, God is one that wants to find them and is always trying to find them. And so the fact that they then come out of this and say, I'm not going to believe this because I just tried to find God and I could not sense him. I couldn't feel him in any kind of fashion. And I feel like God would take that opportunity. And even if it's misguided, if they're not looking in the right way, if they're looking in a way maybe that's selfish or something like that, God would find a way to use that to bring them to him. Mm. And so how would you, to me, that's, it's, it's a tension for me to see that. And so maybe you have some thoughts on what that would be. Yeah. Well, good, good question, Nate. I don't, you know, I, it's really easy to be, in fact, it's hard not to be a backseat driver in the universe uh, where it's like if I were God and I was in the driver's seat, I would do things this way. Um, you know, I, 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 there's all sorts of things I would change. If I were God, I'd pass laws. Like if I, if I was running for the office of God, if you vote for me, I'll rule out no one's allowed to have any kind of abuse until the age of 12. <laughs> we have a moratorium. Okay, free will, yes, we need that. But dang it, some people should be off the, the, the risk block. And, you know... And, and if someone's genuinely seeking you, well, then you should show up. Don't make it so hard. And, you know, there's all sorts of things I do in, if I was the driver of the universe. Uh, but I'm not, and neither are you, and neither are your friends. And we, we, at some point, we just don't get to call the shots. Um, and so what we have to do is, is uh, respond to what is here rather than wish it was different. Um, you know, the, the I would push on them to say, well, look at you don't have the evidence that God doesn't show up and talk to you or move your heart in a certain way. or, And I, I maybe don't know why. It could be the case that you're just not turning into his frequency or there's something blocking your, you know, your vision. Or it could be the case that he's holding out for some reason. Or it could be that he's trying to come through, but the devil's preventing it. Or it could be a billion things. I don't know. What I do know is I, I've got really good reasons for thinking Jesus Christ is Lord and that there is a God and um, that I'm going to live this way. And so... Can you respond to what is in front of you rather than wishing you had more in front of you? And I, I, don't, I don't want to come across as callous or, you know, you have to contextualize this with your relationship with your friends. And there's all this kind of compassion. At the same time, uh, we, we, we could sit around forever and wish that we had more. 
But the, the, the real responsible thing is to deal with the world as we find it and the evidence as we find it and make a decision based on that. Um, and the thing that happens is, on, for the most part, like there are some things, that I said this morning, that some realities you only get in on after the commitment. Uh, you'll never know the, you'll never know true love. And the Princess Bride has forever ruined that phrase for me. Because whenever I say it, I hear, Whoa, ah. but, but, but you'll never know the re- real love until, until you say, I do. And you're living in it. And you work through it, you know, year after year after year after year. And then you begin to see stuff you didn't see before. And that's kind of how it is with our relationship with God. Once in a while you hear about people who, for reasons we can never explain, you know, God just shows up, you know, the Damascus Road experience kind of a thing. But those are very rare. Usually it's, it's, uh, I, I, you make a decision based on what maybe it's historical evidence plus some existential stuff plus a hunger, whatever. But, but it's always a step out. It's always an I do in the midst of uncertainty. And so you start walking this way. I've had times in my life where even though I had, I've had some great experiences with God, I also go through periods where I don't feel anything. I, I, I feel like an atheist. It's like, I feel like I'm living in a godless void. And I have, and I, I'm not sure why that is there. Is it me or is it God pulling back? Or, and you got this in the Psalms all the time when the Psalm says, why are you hiding your face from us? You know, there's this thing we just can't understand. He's there, he's not. He's like Aslan, you know. He shows up and he disappears and, 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 and whatever. But, but I had to come to the point where I have said, okay, God, I will, look at, I, I, I will serve you since I, the, my reasons for believing in you and submitting to you haven't changed. Uh, I'm going to live this way, pray this way, talk this way, uh, modify my mind this way, practicing the presence of God, because I know he's around even if I don't feel him. Whether I ever experience it or not, again, I'm, I'm just going to keep going down this road. And that really is faith. Invariably, in time, boom, there's a presence there again or, you know, the, a sense of reality. But it, but it fluctuates. So, you know, the, the, the final thing I'll say is just this, that, that uh, while feelings are really nice and having a sense, a, a sense of God's presence is really nice and feeling love is really nice, um, the reality is that th- that is, unless God's doing something supernatural, and maybe even when God's doing something supernatural, you're talking about chemical reactions in the brain. And those things are the most uh, iffy things in the world. Um, and, you know, a- a chemical balances there. And you alter... I mean, Mother Teresa, I've read part of her, her uh, 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 journals. And I-, I think she was a clinically depressed person. Um, just the way she describes things. Yeah, and, but she, hard, she never felt God's presence, or hardly ever. And she was always kind of ma- mad at God for that reason, but she kept on plugging away, and I just so respect that. Uh, but yeah, so, so I, I wouldn't pay too much attention to the chemical processes. Uh, they come and they go. That's true of human love. It's true of God's love, uh, knowing his presence and all that. Great, great question, Nate. Hi, Hi, I'm Alex. Um, You're Alex? Alex, yeah. Um, okay, one of the things that's really hard for me in my faith is, um, so, you know, when you think of God, you're supposed to think of, you know, his main attribute is love and mercy and forgiveness um, and grace. And my question is, what do you have to say about people who um, have never been reached by the Bible and people or people who 
grow up in homes where they're so turned from Christianity that sure. it's not fair. Yeah. And um, we've been oh, discussing a this a lot at my small group at home. So yeah. I'd like to know okay. What say. And, and now remember that the uh, the opinions of the speaker do not necessarily reflect that of any particular camp or ministry or anything like that. This is just me. So don't. Yeah. This isn't. What uh, Ryan stands for or anything. We may not agree. Uh, he may be wrong for all I know. So, um, <laughs> But, you know, here's how I put it together. On the one hand, um, uh, on the, one hand uh, the Bible's really clear that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one goes to the Father except through him. There's no other name by which people are saved. And on and on and on. So this idea that all roads lead to God, all religions are the same, um, it, it's, it is the, as popular as that is, it's not only, it's the most mindless, dumb position I, I, imaginable. No religions even agree with that. I mean, the, the religions disagree. And then people come, all religions teach the same thing. Anyone who says that has never studied world religions. Um, they, they, they fundamentally contradict one another. So Jesus is the way, the truth, and life. No one goes to the Father except for him. So that is rock solid. On the other hand, um, I, I see people in the Bible who end up in heaven who didn't know Jesus. Uh, all through the Old Testament, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the whole crowd, uh, they're, they're in heaven, and uh, they didn't know Jesus. But they're as much sinners as you or I. They, they needed to go through the Savior as much as you and I did. So that, in principle, says that while everyone has to go through Jesus, there are people who go through Jesus who don't know it. Um, they are were judged on the basis of, of the, the light that they had. And then it's important to also remember that the one who says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, in, in John 14 is also the one about whom it is said in the same gospel, uh, John chapter 1, that he's the light that enlightens every person that comes into the world. So he's the word of God. And, and the word of God is perfectly manifested in the person of Jesus Christ. He's God incarnate. But, but there's, there's, there's more to the word than, than is revealed in Jesus Christ. Or at least in, in terms of locality. God's always at work. In fact, uh, Paul tells us in, in Acts 17 that God's been working... At all times and all places, ever since Adam and Eve, with the, the, the timing and the dates and the jurisdictions of the nations, he's at work in all of that. All of that. You know, kings go to war and they fight and, and, and they try to expand their territory and conquer. Uh, and God is, he gets his hands in all of that. I don't think he determines any of that, but he works through it. And his purpose, it says, is for, to get people to search for him and possibly find him. Acts 17. Paul's talking to uh, the, these philosophers on, on uh, the hill. And um, he says, For in fact, as your own philosophers say, Epicurus uh, says, uh, In him we live and move and have our being, and he's not far from any of us. So Paul there is saying, At all times, in all places, for all people, God is at work, trying to work within the constraints of the culture, the, 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 the systems there, to get people to be hungry for him and search for him and possibly find him. Uh, obviously, in, in a lot of cultures, in fact, the majority throughout history, uh, knowing Jesus isn't available. But the word is there and trying to reveal as much of Jesus as possible. And I think that a person's uh, eternal welfare is determined by the, the orientation of their heart, how they respond to God there. Now, God is more glorified when people know him. And, and when people come to a faith in him, uh, in, in Jesus now, and, 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 and since we don't know, I mean, we're, we, we're given our marching orders, we've got to go by those, and the marching orders are that we're to have a passion and an urgency in evangelism. So we can never, I can never just say, well, you know, God's going to take care of them, and so just sort of rest on my laurels. No, he wants to reach them through me. And so I have to, we have to, 
I take on this burden of evangelizing. But we're never put in a position to say that if, if they're not evangelized, or even if they reject it, because we don't know their heart and why they rejected it, that therefore they're lost. God alone is judge. It's interesting that in the, in the New Testament, you never find anybody claiming to know that another person is in hell, except for Jesus, and that is uh, with regard to the rich man, um, and, and that's in a parable. So I wouldn't read too much uh, metaphysics into that. That's God's business. So I live with a hope. In fact, I'll say one more thing, because um, it might help this, this situation. But you, you, I find in the New Testament, while you have all these strong warnings about judgment, and they're real, and hell, and that's real, you have all of that. I also find a strand where there's this incredible optimism uh, in the New Testament. Um, and I, to me, it expresses kind of, it, it seems like God puts a bear hug around all humanity in Christ and says, you're mine. Uh, so as all were in Adam, so all are in Christ, Romans 5. Um, uh, as we all died in Christ, uh, in Adam, so we shall all be made alive in Christ, 1 Corinthians 15, 22. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess, Philippians 2. The whole creation will be reconciled to God, Colossians 1. And, and I, I have to believe that you know, people always have the will, uh, if they want to, to say no. They can always opt out. God, I, I don't think it ever reduces people to, it forces them. But the, the default in light of Christ is to be in. Uh, God puts us, uh, so I, I live with this optimism. I, I, I try to see everybody as a pre-Christian. I know God's at work in their heart. God's drawing them. And if there's any possible way to uh, bring them into a reconciled relationship, uh, God will do that. Great question. Hey, uh, my name is Nathaniel. Nathaniel? Yes. Um, last night when you were talking, you talked all about faith. And you emphasized how it's kind of not certain, how it's unclear. Um, but a verse popped in my head, it was Hebrews 11.1. 1. It says, faith is being sure of what you hope for and certain of what we cannot see. Um, how would you justify Good. that? Good. Great, great, great question, uh, Nathaniel. Uh, uh, Hebrews 1 is, I, I think, the, the most important uh, verse. Really, it's the only verse that ever talks explicitly about how to do faith from the inside. Like, uh, how do we actually do it? It, it, it is a covenantal commitment. You get that all over the place. But how do, what does it actually look like inside of our head? I think that's the only verse that, that does that. So uh, it says, faith is the, in the Greek, hypostasis of things hoped for. And then it says, it is the enlenkos of things not seen. And those words are very important. This is one of the few places where I think the King James Version is actually the best translation out there. Um, and I, I don't say that about very much with the King James Version. But the word hypostasis, the, the literal meaning of it is substance, uh, something substantial. Um, and so he's saying faith is the something substantial of things hoped for. And then he says elenkos, it is the elenkos of things not seen. And that word uh, uh, means to have a conviction about something, um, or a, a sense of assurance. So... As I put it together, here's how I see it. Um, among other things, faith is like a vision that you hold as a substantial reality in your mind, which creates a conviction that moves you towards it. So, And, and we're all having faith of different sorts. Okay, it's, it's, so it's like this. Um, if um, I, When I said I do in my marriage, 
I was, I had a vision of what our marriage would be. Uh, I, I saw us together, you know, and blah, 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 blah. And, uh, whether I was aware of it or not, conscious of it or not, I was running tapes and movies and soundtracks in my head. We always do that. We preview the future in our head. And the more substantial that is, the more real like it is. In fact, we can show this neurologically now. Uh, neuroscience has demonstrated this. The more life like that is, the more in color it is, the more it has motion, the more it creates a sense of reality, which then motivates you to move in that direction. Now, are you logically or psychologically certain that you're going to get there? You can't be. You might get hit by a car or die of a brain aneurysm, you know, in the next moment. But you, you're, you're, you're moving in that direction. Everything that, that and that's part of what Jesus means when he says, according to your faith, be it unto you. I've dealt with people who are having marriage conflicts, for example. At the root of almost all marriage conflicts is bad faith. Because what happens is they they may go to counseling and they say, we want to get we want to stay married because we know it's God's will for us to stay married. And so they go through counseling to stay married. But what they don't maybe even realize they're doing is that in their heads, they're running tapes of all the bad stuff about their marriage. My wife is such a blah, 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 blah. And they review that, or when they're offended, they go over that, over that, over that. And they hold it as a substantial reality in their mind. They see it. They can taste it. And they live in that bitterness, which creates this resentment. And they go over it again and again and again. And so they're exercising faith out of the marriage, even while they say they want to stay in the marriage. And invariably, according to your faith, be it unto you, that marriage will never last. You can, however, reverse that. If you really want to be, you know, stay married, then here's what you do. You intentionally choose to envision a good marriage, envision it, and move towards that. And, and remember the best things about your spouse and preview those. And when you find yourself ruminating all the negative, you get rid of that. And see, that will create a different kind of momentum in our life. Everything is driven by vision. Um, and I think faith is ultimately that kind of vision. So when, when, uh, one last thing. When, when you're praying for someone for healing, for example, and I really believe in the power of prayer and healing and that we're, that's part of what we're supposed to be doing. Um, when I'm praying for them, what, what does it mean to have faith for them to be healed? Some folks will tell you it means you've got to convince yourself that it's going to happen. And then you end up with like the Lion and the Wizard of Oz saying, I do believe I do, I do, I do, I do believe. And you have plenty of folks out there who will say, well, if you just believe it's strong enough, it will happen. Which means that if it didn't happen, it was because you didn't believe it enough. Which now you've got to end up blaming the victim, and that can wreak terrible, terrible things in people's lives. As I understand Hebrews 11.1, 1, it doesn't mean you're logically or psychologically certain of it at all. It means you envision this. You picture them healed. You believe it, 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 it's God's will ultimately and hopefully now to heal them. In heaven, there won't be anyone else in, anyone in a wheelchair. And we want to demonstrate as much of heaven now. So I encourage people to envision them walking. And, and what you're doing is you're aligning your heart with God's heart and you're pushing in that direction. Lord, bring about a healing in this person's life. Restore their legs. Make their legs do what they're created doing. You're just kind of pushing. I, I think all faith is a matter of partnering with God to bring about God's will on earth as it is in heaven. That's the Lord's Prayer. And, and so you're bringing about God's, you're, you're like pulling heaven down. And, and that, that what, what motivates that is faith. Faith is the, the hypostasis, the substance of things hoped for. The elenkos, the conviction of things not seen. I think that the term certain uh, in your translation is an unfortunate one. Uh, I, I know what they're getting at. It's it, it, a kind of a strong conviction about things, but certain has implications that I, I wouldn't uh, say are appropriate in that text. Very good question, though. Thanks for asking that. Excellent. Hey, I'm Jonathan. Jonathan? Yeah. Hello. 
Um, so last night you were kind of talking about uh, something that you've been struggling with for the last two years and just kind of rectifying uh, God being very merciful and forgiving in the New Testament, but then in the Old Testament being on jet, like very justice and like oriented and like yeah. punishing people. So I was wondering, how did you, you said you were kind of starting to see the light. Do you want to share kind of? I see the light. About that? <laughs> Uh, well, this is why I'm now. Uh, okay, I, I have to be careful on this because I'm in the process of writing a book, and and, and and when you ask a question of a person who's in the middle of writing a book, that the temptation is to give the whole book. <laughs> like, you know, I can't have trouble finding the off button. Uh, so I'm going to try to be just give it two minutes here. But I love this question. I'm savoring on it. The first thing I'd say, Jonathan, is that it's not a question of uh, mercy versus justice. I, I wouldn't play it off like that at all. God is merciful and just in both testaments. Um, you know, there's, God cracks down on sin in both Testaments. There's judgment in both Testaments. So it's not a matter of, of, of that. Um, it's rather the issue is um, more specifically about uh, Jesus when he, the, 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 he, he reveals at the heart a God who would, it's the way that God goes about things. He reveals a, a God who would rather be crucified by his enemies than slaughter them. He could have called legions of angels, but he didn't do it. Um, uh, and a, a God who is, I, I would argue, at the very core, uh, a God of nonviolent love. Nonviolent love. I, 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 he does this, and he tells us to love like the Father loves, and he loves like the rain falls indiscriminately on the just and the unjust. Um, and, and we're called to love like this. And he tells Peter to put away the sword. If you live by the sword, you're going to die by the sword. And uh, to, to, when you're struck, never strike back. Uh, but to turn the other cheek, he even overturns an Old Testament law to do that. You've heard it said, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, quid pro quo, all of that. Jesus says, well, but I'm telling you, nope, here's the deal. You love your enemies. You bless your enemies. You serve your enemies. If they're hungry, you give them something to eat. If they're thirsty, you give them something to drink. So you've got this picture of God. Uh, God still judges. I would argue that the, the way, I mean, God still judges. Um, I, I think you see that in Romans 1 where he, he, turns, he turns people over to their sin. And the wages of sin is death. And, but how do you reconcile that with then the God who says, show them no mercy, uh, slaughter them all? Or the, the God who's, I mean, some of the depictions of the Old Testament are frankly shocking if we really let ourselves read them. Uh, in Jeremiah, you find the Lord saying that he's going to uh, take the heads of the, or take children and parents and smash them together. I will smash the children against the parents. I will cause the, the parents to eat their children and the children to eat the parents. Uh, hopefully after they die. Sounds like zombie land or land of the night of the living or something. But yeah, it, it, this it, it, cannibalism. Um, at one point, he says that uh, he's going to judge Israel and rip the, the, the babies out of the wombs of the pregnant mothers. It's like, what? How... Is that at all like, like, like the God revealed in, 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 in Jesus Christ? Um, so here is the essence of what I'm proposing. I, I, I can't go into the details. It will raise more questions than it's going to answer, but you have to buy the book. <laughs> no, no but but here, here's how I see it. Um, if Jesus reveals who God is, and he does, in fact, I, I, I would make the case that when Jesus comes, all bets are off. Everything you thought you knew about God it has to be redefined. 
Uh, Hebrews 1, it says that uh, in, in the past God spoken to us through the, uh, the prophets, through the writings in various ways and in the various times. But in these last days, which simply means in this last chapter, He's revealed Himself through His own Son, who is the perfect expression, the Greek word there is character, of the Father's hypostasis. There's that word again. The Father's essence. What he's, he's drawing a contrast there. We've had these revelations, you know, in the past. They're all good. They're all good. But now we know who God's real character, and not just His presented character, but His, his true heart. In Jesus, we find the real heart of God. And that theme is, I think, driven, it's more strong in the New Testament than, than most people realize. Uh, he's called the Word of God, because that just means he, the Word of God. It's not like there's a lot of words. There's one Word of God, the image of God, the form of God, the perfect expression of God. He says, if you see me, you see the Father. In fact, at one point in, in Matthew 11, uh, verse 27, 28, Jesus says, no one knows the Father except the Son, and he to whom the Son will reveal him. Now think about that. And first of all, if Jesus isn't the Son of God, he's the most arrogant maniac who ever existed. Uh, that's why this idea that he's a good moral teacher just doesn't fly. He goes around saying, nobody knows God except for me. And whoever I want to reveal them to. But now think about, if no one knows God except for him, and there's got to be some hyperbole going on here, because I, I have trouble believing he, he means this literally, but he, he, he just took away the whole Old Testament. There are people, no one knows God except for me. And so, but what, at the very least, what he's saying, when, when, he, when, when Philip says, show us the Father and we'll be satisfied, Jesus says, have I been so long with you and yet you don't know me? If you see me, you see the Father. John 14, uh, 9 and 10, or, or 7 through 9. If you, so he's saying, don't look anywhere else to know what God's like except here, me. Hmm. Hmm. Okay. I, keep your eyes fixed on me. So what I, and, the, and then Jesus on top of that tells us several places. He says, the whole Old Testament is about me. If you really, if you believed, if you believed in, in Moses, really, you would have believed in me, John 5, because he wrote about me. He tells the disciples on the road of Emmaus after the resurrection. He says he opened their eyes to see all scripture pertaining to him. And the idea is that all of this points to, to, to Jesus. So we got to ask the question, how, do, uh, how does a portrait of God ripping a baby out of a mother's womb point to Jesus? <laughs> it's a good problem, isn't it? It's a tough one. Uh, this is what you're wrestling with God on. And, and, and uh, what I'd say is this. Uh, if all Scripture points to Jesus, that means I have to put on Jesus' spectacles when I look at the Old Testament. i got to read everything in, 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 in the Bible through the lens of Jesus. If Jesus reveals what God is like, he reveals what God's always been like. God didn't start being Jesus-like when, 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 he, when, he was, when he was incarnate. He's always been like Jesus. Now, what, what we know about Jesus, among other things, is he was God incarnate, God entering our humanity, and he's, he, he's the God of the cross. He dies on the cross. He becomes our limited humanity, and he becomes our sin. 1 Corinthians uh, 5.21. 2 Corinthians 5.21. He becomes our sin. On Calvary. And he's always been like this. This is the character of God. So, it means God is always the kind of God who in his love is entering, stooping to enter into our humanity, taking on our limitations on himself, and stooping to take on our sin and, uh, and bear our sin. And on the cross, he appears like a guilty criminal. He takes on a guilty appearance, even though he's not, but it's all motivated by love. And so as I look at the Old Testament, um, what I see is God acquiescing to the mindset, entering into the limitations and the sin of the people he's working with. He's going to work with these people, and they're going to speak for him even when it ruins his reputation. That, but that means I have to, when I read the Bible, I have to be able to say where God's truth is breaking through, and I see a true picture of God because it looks like it reveals like Jesus Christ. And most Old Testament's like that. 
But also, where is God bearing their sin? And, and uh, 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 taking on, reflecting the fact that he's entering into solidarity with his people. And, and that, that's the lens I have to look at. So it's a little bit like my final word, and then I'm going to shut up to go to the next question, because I could go on this forever. But did you see uh, Nanny McPhee? Okay, so, well, you should have seen it. There's actually been two versions. Uh, they're both pretty lame. But the, there's a good analogy there. Um, you know, Nanny McPhee shows up, and, and she is this... Uh, uh, not terribly attractive uh, looking nanny because these kids, these seven kids have been driving all the nannies crazy, driving them out of the house. Um, and she, she magically shows up and she's got warts and she's, you know, real big and, and she's got crooked teeth and a big tooth sticking out and nose and kind of witchy-like, ominous-like. Well, then, uh, you know, as she works with the kids, uh, she... She still looks ugly. She looks mean. She's got a magical rod to push their, their misbehavior to the extreme so they learn the lesson, which is what God's doing throughout the whole Bible. You want to be that way? Fine. I'm warning you. Okay, you've got to try find out yourself. Uh, but as the kids finally learn that Nanny McPhee actually cares about them and has their best interest in mind, the more that they go along with her, the more the warts start disappearing, and she starts to be transformed into the lovely Emma Thompson. By the end of the movie, she's Emma Thompson, which is pretty attractive. So the point is this. I I have a chapter in this book called Nanny McPhee and God. Because I'm making the case that God takes on the ugliness of the hearts of the people he's working with. Uh, Feuerbach, the famous atheist of the 19th century, was partly right when he says that we make God after our own image. We do. We project all of our ugliness onto him. And God takes it. Because he's a God who wants to enter into that and then move us forward. That's why you find this gradual kind of improvement uh, throughout the Old Testament. So God looks as ugly as we need him to look for him to stay in relationship with us and as beautiful as our hearts will allow him to look. In Jesus, we see the definitive beauty of God, what God's heart really is like. Everything else is an approximation that points towards this, points towards it, anticipates it either in terms of showing the kind of beauty he is or showing the kind of ugliness he's willing to enter into. But we have to take that in consideration as we look at the Holy Old Testament. All right, done. Speaking of you need to get the book, we do have some of Greg's books available in the back after this. Well, I know. Supplies are limited. <laughs> Visa and MasterCard accepted. Oh, yeah. Hi, I'm Mindy. Mickey. Mindy. Mindy. Ha. <laughs> so Wiggy. this morning you were talking a little bit about... Uh, changing our faith to like a moment by moment type thing. And I was wondering, obviously a lot of us here in college are concerned about finding the will of God in our lives. And I was wondering if you could like talk about connecting the way you change your faith to moment by moment with slowly like finding the will of God in your life and what that looks like. Cause I feel like a lot of us feel like it should be a lightning bolt. Suddenly I know everything, but it's not like that. So I was wondering if you could talk about, that okay bit. good good uh, th- thanks Minnie. um i would first of all i encourage you to keep the two things sort of separate um to uh, the motivation for staying present right now god's in this room he's right all around you as you breathe in let it remind you that you are surrounded you're submerged in an ocean of his love see if you weren't aware of that up till now uh, uh then there's a piece of information that you're missing and happens to be the most important inf- piece of information you're deleting part of reality, the most important part of reality, namely God is here. And the motivation for that should simply be because it's true. Uh, we can never, uh, it's always illegitimate to go to God um, or to relate to God for, for, for what you can get out of it. 
Even, even if it's a sincere desire to know his will. So don't become aware of his presence in order to. There's no in order to. You just do it because it's real. Now, the question of how do you discern his will is a very good one. Um, and and it, here I'd make a distinction between discerning his will in the present moment and discerning his will for like a bigger picture thing. In terms of discerning his will in the present moment, I, what I would say is this is that as, you're, as you remain aware of God's presence, as you're talking to a person, going about your daily business, driving uh, uh, down the street, whatever you're doing, a- a- as you're aware of his presence and you're submitting to his presence, there will certainly come times, if you're open to it, where you will feel a, an impression, a nudge, a picture, or something. He talks to us in different ways. And if, as long as those pictures, net nudges, or whatever they are, are consistent with the with what you read in Scripture about what we're called to do, as long as it's consistent with love, ultimately, I encourage you to act on them, even if they're bizarre. I, uh, a while ago, I just had gotten, someone paid me for something that, that I had done, and it gave me a $100 bill. I hardly ever have $100 bills. Put it in my pocket. Drove out of the parking lot where I had met him, and a lady crossed in front of the car with her child, and um, I was practicing the presence of God, just being aware. I was, I was blessing the person like we're supposed to do. And all of a sudden, I had this tremendous urge. I'm supposed to give her the, the $100 bill. And so I got out of the car and says, I said, ma'am, do you believe in God? And I would have given it to her even if she said no. But um, she goes, yeah. I go, okay, I think he just told me to give you this. And I think she thought it was a dollar. She goes, oh, thank you. That's nice. And then I drove off. And then I looked in the rearview mirror, and she looked at it. And then she, oh, right there, it was so cute. Because you look kind of poor and, and like a street person maybe. But she fell on her knees and grabbed her child. Now, what if that was just me? Maybe it wasn't God. Maybe it was just me. She needed the money more than I do. And, you know, worst case scenario, I'm out a hundred bucks. Boohoo! And and you know, but but I think it was God. And 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 as you respond to those, the trouble is, is we're Lord of our own life most of the time. We don't even. We do what we want to do. But to be open to God nudging us in different directions, well, what can happen is you'll start to sometimes see things start to fall into place. Like you, you say, you share a word that is just on your heart, boom, it really lands. And there's what we call kingdom coincidences. And so it's a, it's a matter of, in the moment, just responding to the nudges and the pulls and the pushes. In terms of, of, of uh, knowing his, his will for you and bigger picture stuff, there I would... Oh, still pay attention to internal nudges and stuff, but the higher the stakes are, the more you need to have confirmations about this kind of thing. And so two things I'll give you that I think would, are, are helpful that I, I always use when faced with major decisions. One is, first of all, community, community, community. Who do you have in on your life whose insight you trust, who will pray with you to discern it? I think everything in the kingdom operates better and is supposed to operate with others. This individualism we got is really setting you up for, for deception and stuff. So community. Secondly, um, it has to do with the faith thing. Um, I, 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 in prayer, encourage people to run faith scenarios out about your options. Should I, you know, you say yes to this marriage proposal or not? Should I take this job or this one or this one? Should I, you know, and in prayer, spend some time envisioning the future and ask God to show you which of these roads to go down, which one is his will. And generally speaking, you want a community to confirm this and stuff, but usually the one that God is, is leading you to will have a certain something about it. It usually ministers more peace. It may not be the most convenient one. It may even look ridiculous, but there's just a sense, if you're really, that, 
There's a passion for that and a peace about that and a yes about that that you don't find with the the other ones. And that, I, I find, is, is uh, the, the best way to move forward with that. Yeah, which one ministers? The, you know, it says in Psalms that if you delight yourself in the Lord, he'll give you the desires of your heart. And I don't think that means he'll give you whatever you desire. It rather means he'll give you the desires. So if your purpose is to seek first the kingdom of God, you want to be a God person, a Jesus person, a kingdom person, that's your main ambition, that's your main sense of well-being, you get your life from Jesus Christ, if all that being true then generally speaking, the one that you want to do is the one that he wants you to do because he's the one who made you want to do it. And so I ask him, which one floats your boat? Which one makes you most excited? Yeah. This, this idea that God calls you to, to, to be miserable is only true if you're fighting God on, on other terms. He will make you miserable. But if your delight is in him and you're getting life from him, well, then he, he, he likes it when you're delighted with what you do. Double bass pedal. Um, I was just wondering, you're talking about CS. Where are we? Oh, right. Oh, back there. Sorry. Um, you're talking about lessons you learned from CS. You didn't give me Lewis. your name, Kelly. Oh, I'm Kelly. Right. <laughs> I was just wondering, um, besides like what you were saying this morning about CS Lewis, what's like the greatest lesson you feel like you learned from him, or the greatest piece of knowledge from him, and what are your some of your favorite works of his? Oh, uh, wow, that's a hard one. The best thing I learned from CS Lewis. I, gosh, I don't know if I... Best thing I learned from C.S. Lewis? Um, man, I just don't know the best thing. Um, you know, the one, the, the work that had the, the most impact on me, I guess, was mere Christianity. And that, that's just... It was such a... It was, it, it's such a simple and yet thoughtful and commonsensical and persuasive presentation of Christianity. I just think it's, it's absolutely uh, uh, magnificent. I... Uh, also really like the great divorce. Uh, it, I, that is the best argument for hell uh, I can imagine, even though I'm not sure I agree with it anymore. But this, just the, uh, he, he gets, it's such a profound psychological work and spiritual work. Because in, in that book, the great divorce is, is really his, his answer to Milton's, or uh, no, who was it? Uh, the great marriage? Blake, Blake. And, and so he's saying that there, there is... He thinks a great, that there, there, you can divorce God eternally. And so it's his defense of hell. But it does in terms of this allegory. And it has to do with this, his, his whole, um, the self-curvature nature of sin. All sin is by its nature a turning away from God and turning towards ourself. Which is very Augustinian in, in its own way. But he just does it in such a, it's shutting your eyes to the light. It's creating your own alternate reality. Uh, here's what reality is. Here's what God tells us. Hey, you know, here's reality. Get with it. He, maybe one of the best things he's ever said that I, I love. He says, our the main business of life is um, uh, to, to learn what is real and uh, make yourself like it. It was something like that. It doesn't do any good to fight reality. Reality always wins. Our job is to learn to love reality. Uh, God says, here's what's real. And all sin is a matter of trying to create your own separate reality, your alternate reality. And so he sees hell as sort of this eternally vanishing point of self-enclosure where you, you, you just get more and more into yourself and, and you create your own little alternate reality. He sees, he sees hell as sort of a suburban sprawl where everyone's moving away from each other farther and farther and farther, you know, just trying to get more and more distance because they can't stand one another. It's a profound book. Um, yeah, so I, I guess the great divorce. The, the place I don't, I like him the least is problem of pain. I, I just that's where he was at when he wrote it. But I, I think that 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 
he's got some good things to say there, but uh, he, it's not him at his best. I don't know. I, 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 I can't I think of one other best thing he gave me. But he's good. Read him. A grief observed is better than a, a grief observed. Point. You know, that's true. That, that is true. Because that was after the death of his wife. And, uh, yeah, and in fact, even he kind of uh, uh, mocked his earlier work on the problem of pain. I didn't know what I was talking about. He says, I was a damn fool. Hey, I'm Chris. Uh, just a question. You said you don't really buy that, uh, his interpretation of hell from that book anymore. Why is that? Um, I'm, in more, I'm now inclined to think, and here's the, again, it's, I, I've gotten totally okay with process. You just, uh, so I'll give you a report on sort of where I'm at now. I, the main thing that's changed about my thinking on this is being totally okay with being inconclusive. Uh, you know, just, but um, as I'm reading Scripture, I see, it seems to me that, that um, the main thrust of Scripture when it comes to judgment is that the wages of sin is death. Uh, that though, if, if people get to the point where they're, they're irrevocably lost, they stop existing. And there's a justice there and a judgment there, but it's also a mercy there. And so I, the position is usually called annihilationism. Uh, Edward Fudge wrote a book, uh, the best single book I've ever read on this is called The Fire That Consumes. Um, and uh, it's just a, 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 an exposition of all the verses of the Bible uh, that, that deal with hell. And it, it, he may, tries to make the case for annihilationism. So I, as I see it, that, uh, uh, the final, the, I forget the details, but the final, the, the final reality is there's God who's a consuming fire, and the fire is identical with his love. And in the end, um, everything that's compatible with that love is refined. So you have 1 Corinthians 3 where everything will be tried, wood, hay, stubble, and if it's not compatible with God's character, it's burned up. And if it is compatible with God's character, it's perfected, and that's the final state of reality. Uh, uh, now, that could take thousands of years, uh, for all I know, and there's a process there. There's, there's, you know, there's justice that's going to be served. I don't think you know, that uh, your rank-and-file reprobate will get the same thing as Hitler or whatever. There's, there's a moral accounting that I think is going to happen. But I suspect that the final state of the wicked, Obadiah says it in Obadiah 16. He says, the wicked shall be as though they never were. The psalmist says they'll be as a dream when one awakes or as smoke that ascends into the night, uh, that they'll, they'll be nothing. Else there. So I see this as both God's severe judgment and also God's mercy. It's sort of like when he kicks Adam and Eve out of the garden. The purpose is to keep them from eating of the tree of life because if they, were, if they were to do that, they'd be eternalized in that condition. And he doesn't want them to be eternalized in that condition. To prevent the traditional view of hell, uh, God uh, puts them out in, in this view. But the, the, the other thing I'd say, oh, in, in, in this view then, you have six verses in the New Testament that talk about eternal judgment uh, or uh, yeah, eternal punishment. So you ask, well, what about that? And in the annihilationist view, the, the, the word ionian there, it can mean age long. In fact, it usually means that in Scripture. But if it does mean never ending, it means it in, in the sense of consequence rather than duration. For example, in Hebrews 9, uh, he says that we've been redeemed with an eternal redemption. But it doesn't mean that we're eternally in the process of being redeemed. It means that once we're redeemed, it's eternal. It's irrevocable. So also, eternal judgment is a judgment for which there's no second chance. It, goes, it, it will last forever. But it doesn't mean that you're actually enduring it any more than we'll be eternally in the process of being uh, redeemed. It's, just, it's a way to look at it. Edward Fudge, uh, Fire That Consumes, is the best single work on there. 
My name is Annika. And my question was, how does spiritual warfare fit into this picture? This picture being the creation, the fall, the Christian life? Um, yes, the Christian life. Yes, yes. All of the above. Well, yeah, that's... that's um, I, I may talk about that tomorrow in, in the talk. I, I, I think, and we had a little bit of a talk after the, the session this morning. Uh, some of you maybe know, I, I wrote uh, a, a, two books on spiritual warfare uh, in the, about 10, 12 years ago. Um, I myself went through some episodes of, of uh, spiritual warfare. It was a bizarre time in my life, uh, which got me into looking into the reality of spiritual warfare and the reality of demons and the devil. And I ended up writing a book called God at War, which is a, a, uh, a exposition of what the Bible says about cosmic warfare and about spiritual warfare. And I, I try to make the case there. I, I became convinced that the entire biblical narrative is woven around the theme of God, God overcoming opposition to establish his lordship on earth as it is in heaven. And the biblical narrative revolves around this conflict. And so... It, my, my own conviction is that we live in the middle of a cosmic war. I'll say a little bit about that tonight even, uh, as we're going to talk about living out the Christian life. And it seems to me that, that Western theology, and American theology in particular, has really suffered quite a bit because we don't take the devil seriously. And we don't take demons seriously. So you, you get people who are, you know, it's the most common thing. People go, well, why me when something happens? How could this happen to me? Well, that question presupposes that bad things don't happen to good people, which, which would be normal if you're living on the, in vacation. If you're on vacation, you don't expect bad things. You, you know, on vacation, you want things to go your way. You want to be convenient as much as possible, have luxury, da-da-da-da. And so if you stub your toe, you're really upset because it's going to ruin your vacation. But if you're in the middle of a battle, say you're over there in Afghanistan or something, and people are shooting at each other, you don't get surprised when you stub your toe. You consider yourself lucky that you didn't get hit. But no one says, why me? How could this happen? No, you're in battle. This is what happens in battle. Our, we have a vacation worldview. I, the, 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 American, the American worldview is a vacation worldview. Have all the fun you can have, as much convenience you can have now, as much riches as you can have now. Just capitalize on it right now. Grab it all right now as though this was the only time. And, and, and this is uh, vacationville. So the church has absorbed that. And uh, uh, so we're surprised when bad things happen. How could it happen? Well, there, if there really is, I'll take say more about this t- tonight, but if, if there really is a devil and there really are demonic forces and there's a war going on, then, it, it, then it's not surprising that the world is a screwed up mess. And it is. Uh, we just have a little oasis, a little bubble here in, a, in, a, in, a, in, in the middle of upper class America uh, that can shield us from that. And so we have a theology that really kind of reinforces that. Oh, everything is exactly as it should be, uh, and that's nice because we're on top. Uh, but the reality, I, I think warfare is everywhere. That's... In fact, uh, tonight, I'll, uh, if not tonight, tomorrow, I'll talk about our, living a life of warfare, a li- life that revolts against the status quo. Bagada! And what is your name? Um, Andy. Hi, Andy. Hi. Everyone um, say hi, Andy. Hi. Andy. Yeah. Hi. So, when did um, you start using? I'm only kidding. <laughs> it's not like an A anything. So, with so many religions around, how do you know that Christianity is the correct faith to pursue, and why? Nice. Nice. Um, 
Well, Andy, I would first of all encourage you not to package the question in terms of religion. Uh, mainly because, well, I'll say two reasons. One is because religion is impossible to define. You know, what is a religion? We think we you know Buddhism, Hinduism, Muslim, but it really becomes kind of hard. It's not like there are all through these separate, distinct things called religions, uh, and you can clearly identify them, and one of them is right and all the other ones are wrong. Um, that way just is, I think, hopelessly murky. Uh, when we study world religions, you find that they start to blend into one another, and there's, there's family resemblances, but, you know, they disagree with even the one, like Christianity. Is that one religion? Well, man, you sit down, and, and if you've got a real, you know, hardcore Calvinist and a hardcore Arminian or open theist out there, it's going to sound like there are different religions, and they have very different views of God. And, 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 you know, so you might find more differences between Christians in the family of Christianity than you might find between Christianity and some, some Muslims or some Sikhs or some Shinto or whatever. So I wouldn't package the question in terms of, like, there's a marketplace of world religions and one of them's the right one. i got to go through all of them to figure out which one's the right one. Uh, I, I don't think it works like that. The second thing is, I, I, don't, I, don't, I wouldn't package it like a religion question because I don't think Christianity was supposed to be a religion. And so far as you can define a religion if you, as a system of behaviors and beliefs that gets you right with the gods or, you know, whatever, um, I, I don't think it, 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 what Jesus came to do was not start another one of those. Like, here's the new and improved true version of what you already got. Um, what he came to do, I think, was to uh, set in motion a revolution. Uh, but not like any of the kind of revolutions we've already had or will continue to have, which are about overthrowing governmental powers or beating up people or getting your way. Uh, it, it's rather a revolution of, of a group of people who, live in a, who, who are called to live in a very, very different kind of way that's attractional and brings people under the lordship of, of Christ. Um, it's a mustard seed movement. And so, so I, 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 wouldn't, I, I wouldn't assess it in terms of religion. What I would do is assess it maybe in terms of truth. And, and see, if, if you're looking at world religions, whatever that means... What you'll invariably find, I, I think, if, if, unless you have an axe to grind going into the question, but you'll find that there's a lot of good stuff in all of them and a lot of bad stuff in all of them, including the Christian religion. Frankly, I would argue, I would argue that the worst religion is Christianity. You're in trouble. Don't quote me out of context. But I, 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 I think at times Christianity has been absolutely demonic, and here's why. Because not only has Christianity done some of the normal barbaric things that world religions typically do, you know, torture people, slaughter people, martyr them, whatever. It, has, you know, it does that. That's its part for the course. But it did in Jesus' name, which makes it demonic. Because now Jesus really is the true Lord, and you just used his name, and you just ruined his credibility. I mean, one of the reasons why the Arab nations right now, among other things, but they're so impervious to the gospel on the whole, it goes way back to the Crusades. I, we get over things fast in, in Western culture. <laughs> they don't. Uh, they remember stuff like that. It's one of the reasons why I think it's disastrous, absolutely disastrous, to say America is a Christian nation. Because you just justified everybody who hates America hating Christianity. And there's a lot of people who hate America. And uh, as a kingdom person, that shouldn't bother me. You know, some people like it, some people don't like it. Well, that's, that's par for the course. But don't loop Jesus in with that. You know, keep Jesus distinct. So re- as religion, Christianity, it's done a lot of good. And so have all the religions. It's done a lot of bad, and so have all the religions. It's, it's got a lot of truth. But so, so do I think do all the religions. It's also got a lot of lies, and so do all the religions. I would pose the question not in terms of religion, but in terms of who is Lord. 
And, uh, and, and, uh, boils down to this. Why I think Jesus is the revelation of God on earth. Uh, and why I think that his, what he came to do is something I want to belong to. That's really what it amounts to. And then everything else is just sort of gravy on top of that. So, yeah, I would want to take it out of the category of religion. I make it a histor- historical, existential, philosophical question. Why well, I think this guy is super different than other humans and his movements different than other movements? And do I want to align with that? Okay, it's 2.30. So we want to give uh, people permission to, if you want to go to the deputation info meeting, it's going to be right back there. That's with Chris. If you want to go find out if being an intern might be a call that the Lord has for you in the next year, for you seniors. Janie, where are you going to be again? Or not seniors. Anybody? The game room. Uh, so Janie's going there. If, uh, yeah, let's go. Uh, I'll go 15 more minutes. We'll go 15 more minutes here for those of you that want to stick around on that. But let's uh, provide a... Okay, Chris is saying at the end of this next 15 minutes, if you're interested in deputation, yeah, we'll be back there. Yeah, rather than trying to there. compete. Yeah, yep. uh, will you be in Sounds... charge of telling me when i got one minute left? Yeah. All right. All right. Thanks All for right. having you guys. Thanks. All right, so I know Colin has a question, and Brad has a question. So let's make sure we get to these two, and then uh, we'll see where we're at then. You're Paul? Colin. Colin. <laughs> George? You got to speak up. <laughs> um, this is actually in line with, uh, what was your name? Sorry? I'm Greg. Andy, right, right. Oh. It's sort of in line with his question. Right. I feel like you didn't quite fully answer his All question. Right. Um, so how about instead of why are you choosing Christianity versus Islam or Buddhism, why is it that we choose to follow Jesus rather than Muhammad sure. or okay. Buddha That's fair or Confucius, I guess. I don't know. Confucianism. I, I see. I, I like the, I, I, <laughs> Confusion? Uh, yeah. yeah, see, there, see, now we can get into... That's a better way of approaching it rather than a package deal. Um, we, we treat them all you know, sort of as, as separate all-or-nothing packages. So... The reason I choose to follow Jesus at its not, at a core, I break it down into three separate three separate categories, giving you a rational report of how why I continue to be a follower of Jesus. One one has to do with um, uh, historical issues, and I wrote a book uh, with Paul Eddy on this called "The Jesus Legend." If you want to look into uh, you know the, the details of that, uh, the, the bottom line is I can't. I can't find any convincing way to explain um, the phenomenon of early Christianity unless the disciples were, were uh, passing on truth, uh, unless what, what they say happened actually happened. So here's what we know. I mean, just take, take it out of... I'm not talking New Testament inspired or anything like that. That'd be cheating. Uh, yeah, I know Jesus is Lord because the Bible's inspired. Well, that's not, not very helpful. Um, but, but what we know from a variety of sources is that uh, sometime around the, uh, before the middle of the second century, around the first third of the first century, um, there's a movement of, of people went out in the world proclaiming that this Messiah of, uh, this man was the Messiah. Um, it wasn't a story told long, long ago and far, far away. It was a, a contemporary person. In fact, his brother James is still alive and is among 
the crowd there, uh, as are uh, others of his family. And they go out saying that Jesus Christ is, is the Messiah. They, they talk to him and uh, talk about him as though he was God, using divine attributes and, and praying to him and all sorts of other, doing very peculiar things and saying that they believe he is Lord. And the reason they say he is Lord is because of the life he lived, uh, because of the miracles he performed, the claims he made, and most importantly, because he rose from the dead. Now, if Jesus didn't make the claims, uh, live that life, do the miracles and rise from the dead, I need an explanation for why they thought he made those claims and did the miracles and lived that life and rose from the dead and were willing to die for it. Um, you, don't, you, don't, you don't have enough time for a legend, and it would be, I think, in that environment with the hostility around, the people opposed it, impossible to get a legend off the ground. Plus, you've got the wrong culture for a legend, and a legend usually affirms fundamental cultural beliefs. This one contradicts everything in their culture. It just doesn't... You can't get any mileage on that. The only alternative is that they were lying. But I can't, for the life of me, figure out why they would do that either. And so that, those are the, the historical reasons why I, I think, for me, it would take more faith to think that they were lying or deceived than it is that they were telling the truth. Uh, the, the second thing is it, it has to do more with an, with an existential fit. Um, and, and that works something like this. If, if there is any purpose at all, and I believe there is a purpose for some of the reasons I gave earlier, uh, the longing of the heart for for a purpose and things like that. If there is a purpose, it has to do with love. I'm just that, that to me is like the most fundamental datum in my life. I, it, it's the most fundamental intuition. Um, if I'm certain of anything uh, about there being a purpose, it has to do with love. This story is the greatest love story I've ever read. If you understand it on its own terms, it's the greatest love story not only that it has ever been told, but that it ever could be told. It's the greatest conceivable love story. It is that love story greater than which none other that can be conceived. Uh, because a love story, it, it, the poignancy of a love story has to do with how much a lover is willing to sacrifice for the beloved, how great a distance they'll travel and things like that. Well, here we have God becoming a human being for a race of, for a race of people who could deserve it less. You couldn't get, you couldn't cross a greater distance um, and have a greater sacrifice than what you find here. So it, it is, I think, the greatest love story ever told. And that rings true to what ought to be in my heart. If it's not historical, it's at least the greatest myth ever told. This is, is Kelly still here? This is one of the best things I ever got from C.S. Lewis. In fact, this is the best thing I ever got from C.S. Lewis. He says, Jesus is myth incarnate. He's, he's the best of mythology, but now we're given all the reasons in the world to think that it actually happened. That's why you find vague parallels in other religions and ancient religions with, with uh, the, the Christ story. It's because we have an intuition about what ought to be. It's like close encounters of the third kind, where we've been touched by aliens and we can't quit thinking about this plateau. And, and some people are lucky enough to find it. So there's this homing device, and, and, and this fits my homing device. So that's the existential reason. And the philosophical one, that gets too complex to get into, but I gave you some of the reasons for why I think there's a, there's a personal God who ought to be contacting us. And then the greatest objection to that is the problem of evil, but the cross, and here we have God taking on the problem of evil and all sorts of philosophical considerations like that. Those three things together lead me to think that this is the best thing going. I, this is, this is, I, I want to throw my hat in this ring. It would take a lot of faith for me to not throw my hat in that ring. I have to leverage everything that that wasn't true. And I have all these good reasons for thinking it is. That's why I follow Jesus. But see, now with that perspective, one of the things, and I promise I'll shut up. Gosh, I just talk a lot. But see, one of the things that that does, and here's also why I don't like to package it as world religions, is that there are, you know, like I said last night, when people have this idea of faith as certainty, and they have a phobia of learning. 
And there's a lot of people I've met, a lot of Christians I've met, who are afraid of anything that's good about other religions. It's really unfortunate. And you find a lot of people in those other religions have the same fear about Christianity, which is what causes a lot of this religious hostility that's going on now. I will tell you that I find, and I taught world religions for 10 years. So I've, I've read them. I, read, you know, I know the books. I still continue to read them. I really appreciate Taoism. Some of the stuff in there, I get spiritually fed by reading Taoism. Some of the Upanishads, uh, the Vedas, um, uh, are profound. Some of it I wish was in the Bible. I was like, oh, I wish that was part of our tradition. But I can still benefit from it. And so I, now I, if Christ is my filter, I can go and study world religions, and I have a criteria by which to assess whether something's true or false. It does, it's not an all-or-nothing thing. Oh, this, is large, this is a lot of true stuff. I don't think that's right. Uh, but it, it allows me to be open uh, to benefit from other, other faiths. Yes. Hey, I'm Brad. Hi, Brad. Um, you were just mentioning actually this a little bit. You've talked a lot about um, different authors and works and ideas, and I was just curious what um, some of the most influential authors, thinkers, whatnot, have been both Christian and non-Christian. Oh, man, I, 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 those kind of questions drive me crazy. I, I, it's, you know, one of the things that happened when I became a Christian was I, and I've ever since, I've been a compulsive reader. I just, I just, I go, I sort of crazy. If I even go a day or two without reading, I, I start to get buggy. So, it's like you're asking an impossible There's a ton of stuff there. There's nothing that, I, I, historically speaking, in terms of my life, I'll tell you that one of the most influential people in my life, and I'm just starting to come back to him now, is Soren Kierkegaard. Um, his, his stuff, I, and I just see so much of him in me. I think in ways I didn't, I didn't like constantly make a decision like, oh, that's true or false. But I think he's, I, when, I, when I came back to the faith after my period of atheism, uh, when I lost my faith at the U of M, um, I read almost everything he ever wrote, and he wrote a lot in a short period of time. He died at the age of 54, uh, which is a year older than I am. And, and he, man, he just wrote so much. Now, he wasn't a very good writer, so some of it, you know, was tough. But, uh, man, his insights. He, I, and he's so pertinent to, to American Christianity because he was attacking the church in Denmark, the state religion idea. That of course you're a Christian because you're born in a Christian nation. And he just understood that that was the absolute antithesis of real Christianity. So was one of his final books, it may have been his last one, was called Attack on Christianity. And, uh, uh, man, how we need that today. I, I think we are, American Christianity is pretty much in the same spot that Denmark uh, Christianity was at when he wrote. So he's one of my, my favorites. Jacques Roulot is incredible. Jacques Roulot, he, he's fantastic. Um, Karl Barth, I've always been a junkie on Karl Barth. So those are some starters. Got time for one more? Yeah, and I'm going to take it. Oh! Well, do we have time for two more? Who, who, well, else, who else wanted one? Okay, I'm, I'm going to let Ian... I, mine's going to be really easy. Oh, but. okay, final two. Okay, so my name's Ian. Uh, Hi, my Ian. question is about baptism. Hi. Now, when I, after I was born, I was baptized at UPC. Um, Most people are baptized before they're born, but I, okay. No. But, well, <laughs> a- afterwards. I'm kidding. I, I was baptized. But uh, my question <laughs> is, how do you... After I was born, I was baptized. Yeah. How do you feel about it um, as being baptized as a child when you haven't made the choice to follow Christ and then being baptized later or if you've already been baptized once, being baptized again after you've made that choice? I got gotcha. you. Yeah, I... From my stance, again, this is me speaking here. Uh, I'm the invited guest, so take it for that. But I, I am persuaded that in the New Testament, baptism was done by immersion to adults uh, for the purpose of representing our immersion into his death and our identification with his new life in, in resurrection. 
And so there's all, you know, all sorts of stuff around that. Um, and then I got all sorts of reasons why. Um, the way we treat it in our church, we're, we, only, we only practice adult baptism at our church. Uh, this is because you have to call shots as you see them. That's how we see it. But that doesn't invalidate, I don't think, uh, infant baptism. Uh, it, but it does reinterpret it. And so what I mean by that is this. Uh, in our paradigm, the, the uh, baptism is the, um, uh, the uh, covenant ceremony, the initiation uh, 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 ceremony uh, of the new covenant. You find throughout the Bible, whenever God starts a new covenant, he has a kind of a ceremony for it, and then he gives it a sign. As I, as I understand it, baptism is our initiation ceremony to the new covenant. It's like a wedding. We call it that in our church. It's our betrothal ceremony where we say, I do. And then communion is the sign of the covenant. And signs you always repeat. It's reminders of your, your, your vows. Um, and we're going to be doing that tonight. Uh, what, what we, what, 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 the way I interpret infant baptism is sort of like in those cultures, which has been the majority throughout history, where marriages are arranged. The parents betroth the child, or at least the daughter usually, to, uh, to another family. And the child just grows up into that. Sometimes it's with sons and daughters, but more often it's just with daughters. Uh, and it's a way of, you know, making a deals with, with, uh, you know, family names and whatever. It's a part of the bartering system. But even in those cultures where you have betrothed, so your parents betrothed you to Jesus. And they, they did it with sincere motives, and it meant something. In, in traditional cultures, it really means something to have your parents say, okay, my daughter is going to marry the Joneses you know, down the street. Uh, it, it's a very serious thing. But even in those cultures, there comes a time where you have a ceremony where you make it official. Now you have to own your parents' pledge. And that's how we interpret adult baptism for people who are baptized as infants and for whom it means something. We say, well, here's the time where you're reconsecrating. You're owning it for yourself. Um, and... Um, and then we, we give uh, what we think is the New Testament meaning for that. Uh, going down into the water is identifying with his death. Uh, coming up out of the water is identifying with his resurrection. And now you're saying publicly, I do. I'm betrothed. I'm part of the bride. Chew on it. So something to think about. And last but not least, Ryan. Can you just share a little bit with us about what, what do you do for uh, your individual devotions? How do you go about a moment-to-moment, day-to-day faith in keeping your, sharp, your faith sharp? I mean, there's so much made about quiet times and this or yeah. that. What do you do? Uh, how much time do I have here? Two minutes. Okay, in two minutes. Okay, well, how, how do I keep it sustained? I would, uh, here, are the, here are the basic ingredients. And it evolves over time. You know, what worked last year doesn't work this year. I, I, yeah, and you always got to be open to... You know, following the spirit on this and whatever. Um, one piece that has evolved over the last four or five years is the first 20 minutes to a half hour I give to God. And for, for me to do that, I have to do it before I get out of bed. Because I found that once I get out of bed, my brain, which tends to be hyperactive anyways, starts thinking about what I got to do, blah, 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 or I get ideas. I do it whenever I have a piece of paper by my bed because whenever, I mean, ideas are always coming to me. And if I don't write them down, they keep on chatting to me and they interrupt my time with God. So I like to get, get that out and then I just lay there. But there I try to just practice the presence in bed. Wake up. If I have to go to the bathroom first, I do because you can't concentrate if you're like, like Lord. So I take care of that. 
But then, then I just be aware of God's presence. And, and one of the main things I do is I, 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 I try to very honestly and objectively do like a scan of my soul. That's how I describe it. It's like, like, how, how are things? And, and, uh, are, is there anything off here? It, you know, the Bible says guard your heart. So this is my way of guarding it. Okay, how, how, have I, uh, has anything got tentacles on me? Did I contract anything? <laughs> you know, and, and sometimes I'll, I'll sense a pain. There's something wrong here. And then you just, add, then you offer up to God and you start tracing it down. Okay, what's that? And almost always the pain is the result of having grabbed onto something. Uh, something became too important to me. Or, or, so I'm getting life from a false source. Some worth has been attached to, uh, invariably. And that, I thought I'd out, have outgrown that by now, but I haven't. And I, sometimes I'm even amazed at the petty, petty stuff I find in my soul. Like, it, it's like, Sometimes you're kidding me. If I'm really honest, and sometimes it takes, I, I start with a commitment to go 20 minutes, sometimes it goes longer. Where it's like, okay, there's something going on here. I just try to monitor that and offer it up to God. God, here's my heart. What is true? What is true? What, I think being able to live in the question, what is real, is like the most important thing. In any relationship, in your own heart, what is real? Uh, that's the only commodity God deals with. So uh, monitoring my soul is a, is a major part. I, 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 uh, in, in terms of intercessory prayer and stuff, I do that best when I'm walking. I like to take walks. Though in Minnesota, that can become so difficult sometimes uh, in the wintertime, so uh, I'll do that indoors. But I've I, 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 never been good at kneeling and praying. I, I, I'm like this. In, in my cabin, I'm, I, I walk like this and, and pray. Um, uh, it's just it's kind of how, how you're wired. Um, then, uh, you know, the devotional stuff uh, uh, is, 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 you know, part, that's easy for me because that's kind of part of what I do. I mean, to be meditating on the Word, that, that, that is, in some ways that's cheating, but that's the advantage of, of being a pastor and stuff is you, I always have to be in it. Um, I do sometimes have trouble just, and my wife is really good at this, calling me back to just, like, chew on the Word or study or contemplate it without having some other agenda. Like, just let it speak to you. It's like, sometimes I feel like every nugget I get, I'm supposed to share with other people. And sometimes God's saying, you know what? No, that one's just for you. Will you just keep it? Um, so, yeah, there's a... And then finally, the final thing I'll say, and we've got to end. But I, I, think, I, I, I think it's so important to have special dates with Jesus. I call him that sometimes, where you turn off the, the, the... These are the more intense times. It's not just like dwelling in his presence, but where... You're really hanging out together. And uh, here I almost always will turn off all lights. i got to do this by myself. For some reason, it just doesn't work well, even with Shelly there. I, I, it just doesn't. i got to be alone in my cave, lights off, and music on, beautiful music on. And then I imagine Jesus. And I, I, I have a book on this called Seeing is Believing, where you offer up your imagination. And the Holy Spirit, I think, just comes down and makes things so real. And, and you picture Jesus and, or, or you, and you hear him speak to you the words that he said in the word. And, and here's where it gets really concrete and powerful and intimate. Um, and sometimes healing work comes in these imaginative prayer times. That to me is extremely important uh, for keeping a vibrant. And then, of course, there's fellowship with others, but we could go on and on. So. All right, guys. Thanks hey, let's thank Greg on. for sharing. Right.